So we had looked at this idea of solitude and my push for you was to not focus on the ministry that you perform as a believer, rather on your personal relationship with the creator. It's in this foundation that then we can spurn forth and go forward and do the work that God has called us to do. Now, it's nice to hear a pastor say, listen, don't focus on work for a while. Focus on your relationship with God. And it's very nice for one primary reason is that no one else really sees that effect except for you and then the way that you behave after. As we begin to focus our lives on our relationship with God, there then comes that aspect of what's next. God hasn't just called us to a personal relationship with himself, but then from that relationship with him to go forth and explain that to other people, to invite them into the kingdom community. Now, this idea is something that I feel a lot of us get caught up in, and especially anybody that has ever served in a leadership position at a church knows that it can become exhausting, overworked. The idea that, you know, 10% of the church does 100% of the work. Well, that's a very true sentiment. Our workers get tired, they get worn out. That's why if your relationship is your primary source, then you're continually being fed and healed by the creator and it propels you forth to serve more, to serve better. Now, what I want us to look at this morning is coming out of solitude into mission. Because as your pastor returns this week from sabbatical, there's a lot of conversations taking place about what can we expect, what is it going to look like, what has God done in his life. But my question to you is what has God done in your life over the past five weeks? Because, see, the primary responsibility of New Life Baptist Church is not on Pastor Scott's shoulders. This is the church. So what has God done in your last five weeks. Because believe me, if you're sitting there going, well, not much has changed, then why would you expect Scott's to change? We started this out with the primary focus that you are to be seeking solitude for your relationship. Now, from that moment, I want us to look at just a, a skylight um, airplane view, if you will, of what the disciples went through. Because some of you have taken that first sermon very seriously. I've had multiple Facebook messages, private conversations saying, listen, you know, you really hit a sore spot with me. I've been diving into scripture. I have actually been changing the way that I spend time with God. I haven't been taking my cell phone into my private time. I've been using my physical Bible. I've been writing things down. God has been talking to me. And that's very encouraging. But what can we expect on those in-between times. Because solitude is not something that is continual. There are those moments that we are not in solitude with God. 
So as we live on mission, I want to look at what the disciples had to experience in their own time on mission. I want us to go back at our Luke chapter 4 text, and, and we kind of uh, looked at this for a moment, but I ended with Jesus coming out of the wilderness, and Jesus has just experienced this 40-day fast, and at the conclusion of which he was tempted by Satan three times, and then we, we, uh, we read these words and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. What 414 is explaining to us is that Jesus returns from his time of solitude, but he doesn't just show up. He shows up in the power of the Spirit. He has went through this time, this intimate time with his father, and he has stepped away from that into temptation and out of that temptation and the power of the Spirit which propelled him through those temptations to begin his public ministry. And Luke 4.14 records the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and it's not in his own humanity, but in the power of the Spirit. You know, so often we go through these times of solitude, these spiritual highlights with God where we feel his presence, he's speaking to us, and we say, okay, God, I'm ready for what's next, and we step into that role of ministry, that daily living ministry. And as soon as we step into Monday morning work, it hits us. And everything seems to begin to shake. Why is this so hard? I'm trying to serve God. Why am I hitting these blocks? Why am I experiencing this turmoil when I have devoted my life to my creator? And out of that, my act of worship is to serve him. I do that by the people in my workplace. I do that by loving, by generosity. My acts of worship is my ministry. Why is it so difficult? You know, Jesus begins to, to teach in their synagogues. If you, if you look forth from, from chapter, or verse 14, he begins to teach in their synagogues. He, he begins to encounter people uh, on the streets, healing as he's walking. He's teaching them wherever he goes. He goes across numerous cities, and the masses begin to follow. But in Luke chapter 6, something interesting takes place, and, and correspondingly into Mark chapter 3. So actually, if you would, flip over to Mark chapter 3. And in Mark chapter 3, corresponding to Luke chapter 6, verse 12, this is something that we see unique happen. In Mark chapter 3, verse 13, and he, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach, to have authority to cast out the demons. 
it goes on to list the 12 that he appoints. And you know, why I say this is interesting is because out of the masses, Luke states that he spends the night praying and then draws 12 to himself. And it's these 12 that he's going to spend the remaining part of his earthly ministry pouring himself into. The teaching is going to be unexplainable in human terms. In fact, numerous occasions we see that Jesus is teaching, he draws the disciples away to explain further what he had just taught and they still don't understand. When we are in those moments of solitude with God, he is explaining his work, his will for not just our lives, but his purpose for our lives to affect all around us. It's in these times that we're corresponding with God. Listen, I don't quite understand this. Can you, can you reveal this to me some more? Can you explain a little more? He doesn't always give you the step-by-step instructions. I always say that it's the next step. And, and if you're not ready to take the next step, then stay in the last place that he called you to be. Before they go forth, these 12 men, Luke stating that they spent all night praying by himself and then appoints these 12 to be with him. And Mark says that he appoints them to be with him, that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons, to preach and to heal. Now, I know that we can easily say, well, that's not exactly what we're called to today, but it is. That beautiful Matthew 28 passage that we hear so much from, that we're focused on discipleship making, to go into all the world to make disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded. When we look at this and, and to really develop that further in a few moments, I want you to understand that when we enter into our time of solitude with God, we get to enter into a private, intimate time with Jesus that no one else gets to experience except for you and God. These 12 men got to experience things with Jesus, the living Messiah, that none of us will ever comprehend. There is so much backstory that we don't get to see. There is so much conversation going on amongst these 12 men that we'll never understand, but their eyes were being opened, not just to a new way of thinking about the scriptures that they have known from birth, but that they get to live a new way. That now they don't have to focus on keeping the law, rather focus on keeping their faith, their sight on this Messiah. That brings them from the pending death into a newness of life. That is something that should excite us all, but this is a very unique time for these 12 men. And what that experience is like, we we really can't comprehend, but there's this great little article in Christianity Today back in 1977 that uses this title, A Seminary That Changed History. And it's this back and forth between a student and the teacher, and it finally lands on this segment. The student says, will we see you in class tomorrow? 
The teacher says the class continues at supper in the campfire tonight. Did you think that I only taught in words? And the student says, is there an assignment? And the teacher says, yes, help me catch some fish for supper. It's not just the teaching that we are getting from that time of solitude, but it's a way of living. It's a way of life. And, and what a beautiful illustration this is. And yes, the, the droves of us long for that type of spiritual relationship, but the 12 apostles were not merely sitting around campfires swapping stories. Jesus put them through insane situations. One of my favorite texts to preach from comes just a chapter later in Mark chapter 5, but it begins at the end of chapter 4. And when we look at this, what transpires is that Jesus has just spent this time explaining to those 12 men all of the parables that he had been teaching. And then he says this, let us go to the other side. In, Matt, or excuse me, in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, on that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go to the other side, leaving the crowd. They took along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gal wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? But it doesn't end there. Once the sea calms, once Jesus rebukes it, once Jesus confronts those 12 men, then they land. And as soon as they land, what happens? One of the scariest chapters in all of the gospel, this demonic man that no one can bound comes rushing towards them. And you want to talk about being afraid? I, I love chapter five and this understanding of what happens with the garrison man. But, but what is so beautiful here that I'm trying to get across to you is that from a moment of solitude and isolation with Jesus, being explained everything to them, they enter the most incomparable situation that they've ever encountered. I've often heard it said, that one of the most dangerous places to be is in the center of the will of God. Because you will experience everything beyond yourself. What God calls us to is something so beautiful that we can't understand. The disciples here were dumbfounded. They couldn't understand what was taking place before them. This Jesus that they are following, that they're still trying to understand, just controlled nature, hell, and all of humanity. And they can't wrap their minds around it. What God has called us to is not a fearful, grave-tending life, but an adventurously expectant life. 
In, in Hebrews, we, we find this saying within the, the, the form of the message that, that says the adventurously expectant life, that we can cry out, what's next, Papa? That as childs within the being heirs of God, that we get to look forth to all that's coming next, but yet we live in fear and tempt because we can't understand what is transpiring around us. Our mission is something that is quite crazy. They experience this storm. They experience a demon-possessed man. The crowd is begging them to go away as they're terrified of what they just witnessed. They get back into the boat only then to encounter the bringing back a life of Jairus' daughter. This is a very harsh bit of ministry. This is a lot going on at one time. And not once here does it say that they got to respite. Not once here does it say that they encountered some rest, but something unique that is left out is that journey on the way back across before they encountered Jarius. What was talked about? They had been through the storm, they'd been through the demon-possessed man, and now they're in a boat going back across the water. There's times of respite in our life that we don't necessarily acknowledge. It's in those times that we have to capitalize on what God has given us. But what I love so beautifully about the fact that it doesn't go into what was transpiring on that return journey is the simple fact that Jesus was with them in the boat on the return journey. Listen, what we experience, what we go through while we're living on mission from solitude is that Jesus is always with us. That's the part of the Great Commission that we tend to leave out. And lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Listen, he doesn't send you out expecting for you to conquer all this on your own. He's going to be with you in every step of the way. When you encounter the hardest thing that you ever imagined possible, when you are seeing things transpire that are so outside of our control and we say, man, this is the work of God. He is with you in every one of those moments. As believers, we're challenged with coming back from those intimate times with Jesus, knowing that more challenges and hardships are going to occur. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The famous missionary C.T. Studd said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. What God has called us to from this great commission is to go and encounter some radical things. 
I want for a moment to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, we see that uh, Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples and, and their instructions into service. And I mentioned a form of this earlier back in June, but I want to just take a moment to focus on Matthew's account in verses 5 through 8. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give." He goes on with more instructions, but I just want to isolate that text for a moment because what we see here is a purpose of the mission, and it is our purpose within the Great Commission to this day. They were to preach the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Our life on mission is to preach the coming of the kingdom of heaven. The disciples could have spent their time preaching against the Roman Empire, the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, the need for honest tax collectors, which one of them definitely was not. They had intimate knowledge of all the things that they had obtained from Jesus, but Jesus said, no, you focus on the coming of the kingdom of God. And we are told to preach this as well today within the Great Commission. And what a list of things we could preach out against in our world today. Hypocrisy of our political leaders, the institution of marriage, issues of poverty, abortion, These are issues of a society that has rejected God. But cutting down each of those limbs does not hit the root of the tree. The problem is not that abortion is legal in any form. The problem is not that the men that we elect as the officials of our government are not God-fearing. The issue is a heart problem. And that heart problem begins with the knowledge that the coming of the kingdom of God is at hand and we don't take it seriously. We don't take it seriously. We live in our comfort. We live in our isolation. And we say, but I have a desire to serve and, and just put me in the children's department and if you put me in this area, then I, can, I could serve. But what good is that doing if your primary focus isn't on changing the heart of those that you encounter? It does nothing. It should not matter if you're in the children's department. It shouldn't matter if you're the janitor. It shouldn't matter if you're the pastor, the preacher, the researcher, the, the lead worship musician. God does not care. Those are outcomes of the gifts he has given you. What God cares about is the transforming of hearts for his glory. I'm just going to preach over here for a minute. I'm loving this, man. <laughs> I'm loving it. But when we look at this, 
The message to concentrate on is the message of Jesus Christ, that he was crucified, buried, and risen from the dead. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The mission to preach belongs to each one of us, and it's accomplished in our everyday lives, whether we're getting gas at Costco or Sam's or Ingalls, whether we're getting food, whether we're in our own little workplace cubicle, it doesn't matter. Our mission is lived forth daily. And if you don't believe it, look at what the disciples experienced because it didn't matter where they were going. They could have been going out fishing. They could have been going to the other side of the lake. They don't know what they're about to experience and neither do we. That's why the gospel-centered message is to be on guard. That's why when you look at Ephesians, that the armor of God is about preparing us for every moment of the day because the things that we encounter are beyond our control. And if you think you can manipulate your life to accomplish what you want, you're sadly mistaken and your life is gonna be a living hell. There's a reason that we have this text. There's a reason that we're told to prepare. There was a reason that God in man form named Jesus told the disciples to stay and pray, to be on guard so that they don't fall into temptation. There's a reason that God has poured all of this out through the writing of James and John and Paul. There's a reason that we have the armor of God. It's not because it sounds good in Christian literature. It's because it's a way of life. The second part of this is sent to heal. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons, freely you receive, freely give. Freely you receive, freely give. He says to heal. Now listen, we may not be able to heal in the same sense that the disciples had the power to heal in that time, but we can bring healing to a people that are hurting from the effects of sin. We can bring healing to loneliness and hopelessness. We can bring healing from isolation. And when we grasp this idea, we begin to understand that everyone that the disciples healed eventually died. When we show people that the ultimate source of healing is found in the hope of Jesus Christ, we are showing them that Christ can heal them forever. The kingdom of God is at hand. Death is imminent. What do we live for? We live for our relationship with our creator. We live for what we are searching for in that time of solitude, that relationship. So let's go back to this idea of this great commission of Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How do we make disciples? Man, we love to complicate this. Oh, we love to complicate this. Let me break it down simply for you. First, 
Go and give the gospel message. Preach the kingdom of God at hand. Second, baptize for the new believer to show their surrounding world that they are now a child of the living God. And third, teach them so that they may have a continued active learning of their heavenly father. Oh, that's right. It's not a program. It's a lifestyle. It's not that complicated. We love to make it complicated. The idea beneath it all is to go giving them the hope and the love of a relationship with their creator that cannot just sustain them and heal them, but propel them into a life that they never knew existed. And in that, keep feeding them the truth of the gospel so that they can continue to actively learn. Folks, listen. Why do we not do discipleship so well if it's so easy? Because we're not actively learning. Oh, well, I get my sermon on Sunday and I, I participate in, in this and that with the church. Yeah, that's, that's all good and great, but you know, what are you learning? Where is your growth? Where is your spiritual recovery? And from that, what are you producing? What are you able to produce? We make it so complicated. It doesn't sound so hard, but we naturally do not have the ability to do it on our own. And this means we need help. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have to have help. But it's not just a reliance on God alone, but also those that he's put with us. See, it's this beautiful idea that this relationship with God produces also relationships with one another. If our relationship with God is healed, then from that we're able to heal our relationships with each other. And as we are actively learning and growing, we get to do it together. Thus is the body of Christ. It is the church. It's why the local church is a community of believers. There's multiple parts of the body this community offers us the ability to belong, living with other mission-focused believers, which allows us to support one another, to support one another, to lean on each other. I hit it hard there a couple of weeks ago of why people don't like going to small groups, because we're not allowing each other to be honest with ourselves or each other. When we look at it and we begin to identify with one another, we can lean on each other, say, yes, I've been there too. Yes, I can move forward with you in this aspect. But by the way, I'm not the sole teacher here and this is where I'm messing up and I know you've been there, so why don't you help me out? And as we begin to lean on each other, we're able to accomplish so much more as a community. So why is it so complicated? because we have to work together. And I gotta tell you, there's a lot of people that I don't like to work with. My wife gives me a hard time routinely saying, man, you just really don't like a lot of people. I, I know, and a lot of people don't like me. We don't get along in our human nature. 
but it's not about our human nature. It's about working together with like-minded believers to propel the kingdom of God because it is at hand. We have to work together. Man, we're, we're prideful. Some people, some of us, I'm going to throw myself in there. We love to be the sole contributor. We love to go for it all by ourselves, but that's not the way we were created. We love to say us five and no more, but that's not what Jesus ever intended. Man, this church was doing really good with small groups for a while, weren't they? Man, we were doing really good with small groups. I went to a few of them. I got kicked out of a few of them. You know where it started breaking down? The second we had to leave each other. But I really like the people I'm working with and I don't know who else. I've got to start over. It's not about us five and no more. Because it's not about you. It's about the kingdom of God at hand. It's about what we're called into and it's hard and it's frustrating. We're selfish. I don't wanna give up my securities. I don't wanna give up my small group. I don't wanna give up this little group that helps me work together. After all, I did all the work. Did you? You you did all the work? God has blessed you with everything you have and this is the cost of following Jesus. And I think within that, we become fearful of the what ifs. What if I don't meet the expectations? What if they gossip about everyone around me and I don't wanna be a part of that? Don't know all the lingo. What if I don't do the right things? What if this group doesn't see me the same the other group did? The beauty of the final part of the Great Commission is I am with you until the end of the age. There is beauty in the Great Commission. When we look at this and we live on mission, it comes from spending time, as much time as you can, building your relationship with our God and then live on mission in the light of that relationship. I want to go ahead and the band come back up or Franklin. What I want us to look at here and to begin to understand is that living on mission is something that believers around the world do every day to great peril. Where rebel groups and governments change the church, building doors, they threaten members, they kill the pastor, believers meet cautiously knowing that they are being watched and plotted against daily Jesus tells us that the cost of following him is great, greater than your meager financial gift, greater than anything you can do in your own humanity. In fact, the cost is so great that it can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why when Jesus left the wilderness, he left in the power of the Spirit. When we go in the power of the Spirit, let me just retract that. Let let me ask you this. If believers around the world are fulfilling the great commission of Jesus has presented to all of us, then why can't we do it here in America? Oh, don't get me wrong. What 
are we so afraid of? We have living examples of what it means to be a child of God all across the globe, yet in the lush, prosperous, great America, we can't inconvenience ourselves to fulfill our act of worship by participating in the Great Commission. But I give a great amount of money to the church. You don't know how much money I give. Guess what? I don't care how much you give because Jesus says give it all. So if you're not giving it all, don't tell me about it. And if you are giving it all, don't tell me about it because then you're just being prideful. Jesus told the rich young ruler in Mark 10 to give it all away and follow me. 1 John 3, 16 and 17, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God love abide in him? Yeah, but I don't know what that man's gonna do with that money. And that's why I don't give cash. I've seen him on that corner numerous times. He just doesn't want to give a job. Listen, it's not up for you to decide. If God puts it on your heart, then just do it and shut up. If you don't want to give him cash, give him a bottle of water. Say a prayer over him. Do something, but don't do nothing. Do something. But I have worldly responsibilities here at home. Listen, Jesus told one man in Luke chapter 9, verse 59, to let the dead bury the dead. But as for you, you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. That man did not do that. Jesus even said in Luke 9, 23 and 25, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. It's not a one-time on and off. It's not a one-off. You don't do it once and get your little badge and you're all good. You can sit in the back and be done. It is a daily following. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses it? It's forfeits his soul. Listen, we can remove the fear of living a life focused on Jesus and fulfilling our calling as believers to minister to the world and making disciples because we know he is with us. But you don't understand the strain. I don't read here where Jesus cares about your strain. He says, take that strain, take that, take that frustration, take all of that anguish and cast it on me and I'll carry your strain. I'll carry your anxiety. I'll carry your fears. I'll carry your loathing. I'll carry the people that you don't like to be around. I'll carry the areas that you fail in. You give it to me and you just go proclaim that my kingdom is at hand. Love God, love others. Focus on your relationship with him. Build it up, solidify it. And in that working and understanding that you are going to encounter hardships and trials and tribulations, all that exasperate you and he's there to take it and you just keep proclaiming. I don't care what you do for the glory of God, just do something. You want to see your small groups here be revitalized and discipleship take hold? 
Start living together. Start living together.